The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week, rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Jacob Heilbrunn, who is uh, a friend of the show, the most frequent guest of Americano over the years. He is, of course, editor of The National Interest. And we are going to be talking about David Cameron, or Lord Cameron, as we should probably call him now, who has been in Washington imploring Republicans to keep providing uh, billions of aid to Ukraine. He wrote a article, an article in The Hill, newspaper which got caused a bit of anger among Republicans um, because he was suggesting that uh, those who don't want to keep supporting Ukraine are like appeasers uh, to Hitler and the suggestion of this enraged some Republicans including Marjorie Taylor Greene who said he can kiss my ass I think was the was the phrase she used. Jacob what's your impression of how David Cameron went down in Washington DC? It depends on where you stand, of course, on Ukraine. For the never-Trumpers and the neoconservatives and liberal hawks, this was a divine sanction. For the MAGA right, it was an intolerable affront. A foreign politician and uh, a fit foreign policy official enmeshing himself in American politics. Do uh, Republicans have a view of David Cameron? I mean, do they remember his uh, premiership? Do you think, is he a popular or liked figure in America? I don't think he's very well known. I think it was just the the invocation of the appeasement that really set off the MAGA right, because there has been a, uh, a fusillade of attacks likening opponents of Ukraine aid to the America Firsters in 1939, 40 and 41, who vehemently opposed entry into World War II and argued that the United States should not aid Great Britain. Yes. Do you think the appeasement comparison is fair and just when it comes to Putin? I've always had some trepidation about it. Basically, there are two analogies that are invoked in America. The, the first one is World War I, which is, are we sleepwalking into a cataclysmic war that we had no intention of entering? And that has been invoked for Ukraine as well. Could, could this set off a chain reaction, escalation that leads to nuclear war? The second model is World War II, which is the obverse of World War I. Are we, in fact, catering to to Putin? Is there an appeasement wing in the United States that wants to truckle to him 
hand over Ukraine and create a sphere of influence, granting Russia and Putin carte blanche in Eastern Europe. And that is essentially the accusation that Cameron made, of course. And it, it was effective during the Cold War. I don't know if it's as effective today when memories of World War II and the Cold War have become quite attenuated in the United States, hence the rise of Trump. I, I suppose a key part of the argument is that he won't stop at Ukraine, uh, that Russia will go on to attack Georgia and possibly the Baltic states after that. Uh, Russia, of course, says uh, it doesn't want to do that. Putin has said quite specifically he doesn't want to do that. But of course, people would say, why should we believe him? Do you think uh, Russia has expansionist aims on large parts of Eastern Europe? I think it does. Whether this is a coherent strategy is is another question or whether Putin is simply an opportunist. But he keeps he keeps pushing. And the Ukraine conflict did raise it to a level since he is talking about wiping out the Ukrainian nation as such and conducting what amounts what comes close to a genocidal war, including the kidnapping of Ukrainian children. It, it does suggest that his ambitions are may well be larger than Ukraine. And another thing that is worrisome was during the Tucker Carlson interview, for which Carlson received heavy criticism, but there were some interesting nuggets in that interview. And one was that Putin def- essentially defended the Nazi invasion of Poland and mentioned Poland 38 times. Now, you could say it's just saber rattling, but my my own gut is that if Putin manages to conquer Ukraine, uh, you would see a a greater threat to the West. And it would be a a real it, it would be a devastating defeat for NATO. Well, there's been big news from Russia today, which is that uh, Alexei Navalny has died in prison and it would seem to be, it's, if you are Putin, the timing of this is is could be quite disastrous because you have, you know, this sixty billion bill going through Congress. Presumably, this is going to encourage people to uh, American congressmen to vote through the bill rather than the opposite, um, because he's uh, he's quite a popular figure in America, if not necessarily um, in Russia. I'm not so sure. I think he he sent it to show the Munich Security Conference, which is taking place right now, where world leaders and and politicians from around Europe are gathered, including Vice President Kamala Harris. He wants to show that he's doubling down, that he can do as he pleases inside Russia. And he believes he has the upper hand. He is on the offensive in Ukraine. The House Republicans have stymied this aid bill that you referred to, and Putin thinks that he can crack the West, and and maybe he's right. Yes, I was going to ask if you think he's right, because, uh, I mean, let's say this aid bill goes through. There's quite a good uh, argument on the dovish side, the Republican side, if you like, the the non-neocon Republican side, that says even if we believe in Ukraine and we want to support Ukraine, what is the point in sending all this money if it's just going to prolong a conflict that Putin is inevitably going to win? 
I don't think it is inevitable. I mean, that is the kind of defeatism that sounds reminiscent of the America Firsters, Charles Lindbergh and others who said that we should not aid Great Britain in 1940 at its moment of at its greatest moment of peril. The reason to keep aiding Ukraine is that eventually a deal will be cut with Russia over Ukraine. If we bail out on Ukraine, it could simply collapse. I think we have both a moral and strategic imperative to support it. And maybe Cameron would have been better off making that case rather than focusing so extensively on the World War II analogy. Yes, uh, and let's talk about Putin and Biden a bit, because interestingly, uh, Putin this week said that it was suggested he actually supports Biden um, in a presidential uh, in the presidential election and was very dismissive of talk about Biden's um, mental decline uh, and was quite was quite defen- defensive almost of Biden uh, when asked about that. What did you make of that? It shows you once more how devilishly clever Putin is because an endorsement of Trump would have sandbagged the orange man. Instead, he looked somewhat magnanimous in uh, calling Biden predictable and a, a statesman from the old mold. As far as Biden's mental acuity, I think Putin knows quite well that there has been no diminution in uh, Biden's acumen. And if anything, the more I think about it, the more I think that Biden is actually smarter now than he was before. He's he's less loquacious and he's he's more he's got it together more than he did in the past. Yes, he does. He does make stumbles and there are moments where he betrays his age. But I don't think that he is ill equipped to occupy the presidency, certainly not less than uh, Donald Trump. Do you think that's him or do you think that's the people around him uh, who you think are making very intelligent foreign policy decisions? I think this is myth because Biden insisted on the pullout from Afghanistan for which he's taken heavy criticism. It's clear that he does not simply uh, adhere to the advice that he's given by by his inner circle. I don't believe it for a moment. If anything, the news reports suggest that he has a violent temper that he conceals in public. I think the Grandfather Act is a bit of a shtick, frankly. But uh, when it comes to Ukraine, he certainly seems to have been reluctant, uh, publicly anyway, to be pushed into the hawkish position that he now finds himself in. I think he he somewhat crab-walked into it. Initially, they thought he, he and his circle thought that the Ukrainians were doomed. And step by step, they have upped the weapons deliveries to Ukraine. But I think pretty early on in the in the first month or so, I think they, that Biden realized that Ukraine could hold out, that it might be successful against Russia. And I think it appeals to his Cold War hawk instincts. He's always been pro-NATO and pro-Europe. Congress in America in the last couple of decades, I think it's fair to say, has at times been highly dysfunctional. And this bill that's going through, which has 60 billion in it, but there's all sorts of other attachments and it. It's mixed up with aid to the border um, because that's what the Republicans want, because they say, uh, why should we you know, not protect our own border when we're busy defending other people's borders and lots of other things. 
Is this a problem that Congress can't seem to pass bills about one thing uh, and lumps in all sorts of things at unbelievable costs? No, I actually think the, the, the real issue is the split in the Republican Party. It's not Congress itself. The GOP is a house divided. You have the the establishment and the older generation led by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who who is a vehement supporter of Ukraine. And you have Senator Tom Tillis, who is mocking Tucker Carlson and others on Twitter for being pro-Russia. And then you have this House faction and you have J.D. Vance in the Senate and, and others who are opposed to Ukraine aid. And then in the House, again, I don't think the majority of Republicans in the House are opposed to aid for Ukraine, but enough are. And the House Speaker Mike Johnson's position is so tenuous that he cannot afford to alienate any faction. So he would be, if he simply brought up the Ukraine aid bill, which would pass in the House, he would probably be toppled from power. And you have Donald Trump intriguing from the outside and gumming up the works. In the end, this is a, a battle between Joe Biden and Donald Trump over mastery for Ukraine policy. Well, let's uh, move away uh, from Ukraine a bit and talk about Trump, because I'm sure you want to talk about the legal trials. They A lot of it seems to be coming to a head this week. You have the, the case in Georgia coming under a lot of scrutiny because uh, Fannie Willis, the attorney general, had an affair uh, with one of the special prosecutors, and they appear to have been living at large together with the money that she was paying him. It's a bit of a scandal. They're dismissing it as gossip, but it looks like that case is slightly compromised. And then you have the most immediate case, which is the hush money case in New York, uh, where you have two immediate cases, the civil trial one about the business, and uh, which we'll get on to. But uh, the hush money case is I think fair to say, do you agree it's the most likely to be resolved before the election? Definitely. It sounds like the judge is anticipating a six week trial. And maybe that's the one that will it's been dismissed as the runt of all these trials. But it could be the one that bites Trump and quite severely uh, if he is found guilty by the jury. So far, he's always managed to evade culpability for in, in for any of these charges. But this one could ding him. Well, I believe the maximum sentence for the offence uh, is four years in prison. I, I don't think anybody thinks he's likely to get that, but he could be charged with it. But it, it is fair to say that most people accused of this crime, charged with this crime, are, it's, a, it's a misdemeanor rather than the falsifying business records is a misdemeanor rather than a, something you go to prison for. Yeah, though, again, he hasn't I, he hasn't been he's evaded all of these charges so far. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets caught on this one. He's clearly very unhappy about this trial, particularly because it's taking place in his home state, his former home state of New York. Uh, when the indictment first uh, landed uh, last year, a lot of people compared it to Al Capone. Uh, and you've seen this a lot with Trump, where people say, you know, this is be like Al Capone being done for tax evasion. It's the thing that will get him. It's not his worst crime, etc. Do you go along with that um, analogy? Look, anything is, is possible with Trump. Um, Al Capone, as you, as you noted, did go to jail 
and was brought down. I don't think this case will bring down Trump, but it could hurt him. It it doesn't seem to be hurting him at all. And so I want to ask you if you think that the Stormy Daniels, uh, Karen McDougal, the doorman, the apparent cover-up, the hush money and so on, that aside from the legal implications, is this one the most politically damaging because it reminds people, voters, of Trump's sleazy past? That's what I wonder about. And certainly with suburban women who will be key to this election, it is not helpful. It raises the the past, his rakish past, as you noted, and his really, he's, his misogynistic views of women. Uh, and the other unknown is what does Trump say during the trial? When he explode, he, he continually explodes during these trials. Often he's his own worst enemy. But do you not think that Trump has realized that now that the nomination process is effectively wrapped up, uh, the trials are becoming his campaign? A lot of people thought that the the, the sheer uh, logistical difficulties of facing all these trials and running a campaign would block him. But he's actually turning each trial into a, a campaign tool. And the polls suggest that it's working for him. Uh, I mean, he is uh, increasingly ahead in lots of swing states. He's ahead in broader national polls. Biden is is sliding and Trump is rising. Definitely his aim is to use these trials to bolster his popularity, particularly with the base. But does it help him with the general electorate? I'm dubious. I think I'm also not sold on the polls yet. I mean, there's a lot of wiggle room. John Kerry was way ahead of George W. Bush when he ran against him in uh, 2004. And I am not convinced about the solidity of these numbers. The recent, again, the the Democrats keep winning these special elections. They just won the one in, in New York for Congress where the polls suggested that it would be a nip and tuck race. And instead, it was a landslide for the Democrats. And you think, I think, did you write this for the Washington Post or somewhere? You think that the economy is is going to come to Biden's rescue? It's certainly going to help. It's as long as it keeps progressing as it is with the high jobs numbers and inflation coming down, that will inevitably assist Biden's campaign. I don't think... The mistake people are making is it's not going to be a popularity contest between these two. It's going to be who's more unpopular. And I think Biden can effectively portray Trump as worse than he is. It's not going to be a popularity contest, but it is odd, is it not, that if it were just a popularity contest, Trump seems to be in a better position than he was, despite January 6th, despite all the legal trials and despite general Trump fatigue. Well, you know, he's a master brand salesman and he's got a lot of swagger and Biden comes across as a pale and somewhat enfeebled president to many people. That is a stigma that he's going to have difficulty overcoming. But not to you, importantly, Jacob. You think he's sharper than ever. Well, I don't know how important my views are. I do believe that if you look at the way Biden delivers his speeches, and the way that he speaks one-on-one to reporters during interviews, that he has improved from his former garrulous self. He used to go all, all, all over the place on tangents. I think he's much more disciplined now. Let's uh, end by going back to David Cameron, Lord Cameron, and talk a little bit about the special relationship, because 
over here in London, it's probably not very impressing for a lot of Americans. But over in London, there's a lot of talk about the fact we're likely to have a uh, Labour government soon and possibly with a Trump administration. How would you imagine that playing out? And, and give us your broader thoughts on the special relationship, which is a term that is increasingly not used, um, both by the British and the Americans. The relationship would be contentious with a Labour government because Trump would be pursuing policies that the Labour and the Tories as well would view as inimical to British security. I think that Trump will try and cut a spheres of influence deal with Putin and hand him suzerainty over Eastern Europe. And Trump's ambition is to exit NATO and to create a fortress America. That is what looms. That He is preparing the grounds now in his speeches. That's why he's openly saying that Putin should do whatever the hell he wants toward NATO members. That includes you, by the way. I think, yeah, well, I, I think that that quote is being ridiculously over-hyped uh, or negatively hyped um, because it was obviously Trump doing what he does, which is show off about how tough he is with other world leaders. And also the substance behind it is not that bad. And I think what I think is if, if European countries are so going to be so pious about how important NATO is, then Trump's essential point is ever more correct, which is that European countries, Britain as well, should pay our way um, in terms of defence spending. I do not believe that Trump, who has avoided paying bills all his life, is all that perturbed by the failure of the NATO countries to invest more in their security. To me, it's simply a pretext for disengaging the United States from Europe. In his interview in Playboy in 1990, he made many of the same charges against Europe that he makes now. He has been highly consistent in his foreign policy views. I believe that they are sincerely held. So in that regard, I do take him literally and seriously. You, you, so you think under a second Trump administration, the future of NATO uh, or NATO could be in peril? Unequivocally, what what people are what's confounding people is, you know, in December 2023, Congress passed <clears throat> legislation making it, it saying that the that Congress would have to approve any withdrawal from NATO. But n Trump is already showing what he would do. He's he's subverting it by simply saying that he he'll say as president. As far as he can, is concerned, Article 5 is null and void. He has no interest in protecting Europe. And he'll pull out some troops from Europe as a signal to Russia. He doesn't have to officially withdraw from NATO. He can simply eviscerate the organization and turn it into a paper tiger and let the Baltic states fend for themselves. Do you think uh, this really is lastly? Sorry, Jacob, I'm keeping you. Uh, do you think that there is a little bit of acceptance now of more acceptance of Trump among Europe's leadership class. Uh, certainly, you know, when he says things about NATO, yes, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a backlash against that. But you're not hearing people talk about trade tariffs as much. Do you think that's because Biden himself has, particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, has angered uh, a lot of European leaders with an industrial policy that 
that shuts out European competition? No, I, my sense is that European leaders are angry and girding themselves for a Trump term and losing confidence in the stability both in foreign policy and domestically in the United States. That's the that's the message that I get. And that, as I think what is also taking place at the Munich Security Conference right now, when you have Biden sending Kamala Harris there to try and reassure the Europeans that the United States isn't going to isn't going to exit suddenly. I think that their confidence in the United States has been eroded. We will, on that somber note, we will end. Uh, Jacob, thank you very much for coming on to Americano. Thank you, Freddie. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferose, and urge you to leave a generous, kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast uh, on whichever platform you listen to it.